Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Well, let's get into the passage. I want to ask the question as we start, what is the mission of the church? And in this passage, at the end, I hope that you will get the answer. Certainly the church is not this building that we are in or any brick and mortar or whatever kind of construction building that is out there. That's not the church. The Bible never, never ever talks about the church as a building. What the building is, is the meeting place of the church. Because you see, the church is the gathered people of God. The Bible says that the church is made up out of people 
people that God has called together, that God has gathered into his family. And that is why, for instance, if you read 1 Peter and you read in chapter 2, it talks about the people of God as stones, as living stones. So in, in, in one respect, if you're a Christian, you can call yourself a stone. You are building material and you make up the temple of God. The question that I, I, I want to put as a way into this passage is this though. What is the church, you, me, what are we supposed to do? What is the mission of the church? Now, some people would say that our job is to bring relief to the world. So they will be thinking of things like, it's our job to fight poverty. It's our job to go and help push back disease. And so Christians are people who in history started hospitals, and that's what the church is all about. It's our job to establish world peace, to go into the world and model a different way to do things and to deal with conflict. World peace. How are we to work out if that is right or not? How, how are we to work out what the job of the church actually is? What is our mission? And I would suggest that it should surely be to have a good look at the leader. Look at Jesus. When you see what the leader is on about, then you know what we should be on about. Now, I don't know if you've heard of a man called George Verva. Uh, George is an old man now, but for decades he was involved. In fact, he was the founder. He is, he's not dead. He is the founder of the mission organization OM, Operation Mobilization. George is 83 years old today. And his passion, his whole focus is to reach the world with the good news of the gospel. In, in, uh, under God, this man has raised so much money, uh, bought ships, and those ships have sailed around the world, taking the gospel to all kinds of places. Now, George was a regular visitor to the church that I was part of for many years in Cape Town. And every time he came, he wore that jacket that you can see on the picture over there. It's a jacket that contains a map of the world. And, 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 and that is George. He, his whole passion is to reach the world for Jesus. Anyone in Operation Mobilization had no doubt what their purpose was because their leader modeled it. It was just what he was. George was the world for Jesus. He still is. If we want to know what the church is for, look at the leader. <clears throat> look at King Jesus. The passages that were just read in chapter 9 we're going to get into them now. I think they make it quite clear what King Jesus is on about. Now, before we get into chapter 9, just have a look at chapter 8. In chapter 8 and verse 27, the disciples had just experienced Jesus calming a storm. And the storm was so bad, it was going to kill them. And Jesus calmed that storm with, with just a word. The disciples were so amazed at his miracle that they asked this question. <clears throat> you can see it in chapter 8, verse 27. They asked, what sort of man is this? 
What sort of man is this? Well, the stories that we are looking at will tell us. The ones we're looking at in chapter 9 will tell us what sort of man this is. They will tell us what he is all about. And when we know what he's all about, then we know what our mission is. So let's get into this by looking at each of the three stories. The first one, the paralytic. I think we can see quite clearly in there what Jesus' mission is about. But before we look at this story, I want to rewind again. I want to rewind back into chapter 8 again. And I want to look at another question that is asked in chapter 8, and that is in verse 29. Here Jesus is dealing with demons that have possessed two men. And this is what the demons say when Jesus confronts them. Verse 29, they say, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? That word torment means to to, to judge. Well, they know that Jesus is the judge. They know that there is a day set aside when Jesus will finally deal with them, when their tormenting comes, where their judgment comes, where their punishment comes. They know that that time is coming. But the thing is, That time is not yet. That is not the time. And so they ask Jesus, have you come to deal with us before the time? Yes, there is a day when all who are in rebellion against Jesus will be judged. Demons, people. But the judge has appeared on the scene early. Jesus is early. Not to judge, but to bring pardon to offer pardon to people and this is what we learn from the story of the paralytic the judge early to bring pardon to bring forgiveness now when you read matthew's account of this paralytic story he doesn't give the same detail that mark does he does not tell us that jesus was in a house with many people around him he doesn't tell us that Jesus was preaching to those many people that were around him. He does not tell us that the paralytic's mates had to dig a hole through the roof and lower this man down because of there being such a crowd they couldn't quite get to Jesus. Matthew just gets to the core of the story, as as Mark also does. Mark deals with this part as well. And that's where Jesus tells the man that his sins are forgiven. It is striking because you would expect, if you just read that story in a a sort of natural way and you quickly read through, you would expect that Jesus would deal with the presenting issue. The man is paralyzed. Surely the thing to do is to get straight to saying to the man, I see you've got this terrible physical affliction, rise and walk. Surely that's the thing you'd expect Jesus to do. But consider this. We know from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that the core message that Jesus was going around teaching and preaching was was this. Repent and believe the Gospel. It was a message calling people to come to him for forgiveness. We know that Jesus was teaching in that house when the paralytic came. We know from Mark. And it is into that teaching scenario that the man arrives. And here's the thing. Sure, the man 
has a physical need. Sure, he needs to be able to stand up and do life on his own two feet. But what is the good of being able to stand up among your society on your own two feet if you cannot stand on your own two feet before God on Judgment Day? You see, this man needs something far more important. He needs to be forgiven. He needs to be set free from judgment. He needs the stuff that Jesus is preaching about. Now, we don't know exactly what talk was exchanged between Jesus and this man so that he came to the point that Jesus declared him forgiven. All we know is that Jesus says the man has faith and forgives him. That's what we see. See, Matthew's purpose is not to teach about all the interaction that's going on. His purpose is simply to show us that the great problem that people have, the problem of sin and the problem of facing God on Judgment Day, well, that that can be sorted out because Jesus forgives sin. He really can deal with the problem of sin. That's what Matthew wants us to see. And we then see that Jesus can do this, and it's proved by what happens after Jesus says to the man, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. On its own, that is a hugely problematic statement. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. The problem within this statement is raised by the scribes in verse 3. Because they hear this and then they say, this man is blaspheming. And they are not necessarily wrong. This man is blaspheming. You see, only God can forgive sin. It's not the place of human beings to come along and forgive offenses that are against another, against God. You see, you push God aside, you displace him if you speak for him. It's blasphemous presumption. How would you feel if someone in your world, if someone in your life had done something terrible against you? Perhaps they'd gone about spreading lies about your character and you're rightly offended. How would you feel if I then come along and I tell that person, take heart, your slander is forgiven. But the slander is against you. How would you feel? It's not a wrong that is mine to forgive. If I did that, I'd be showing contempt towards you. I'd be just pushing you aside, displacing you. I'd be saying you've got nothing to say because I've now done it all for you. I've, I've taken charge here. I've taken your place. It would be outrageous if I did that. And so the scribes do say among themselves, this man is blaspheming. But if he is not just a man, if he is actually the one who has the right to say this, then it's not blasphemy. And two things follow that show that he's not just a man, that he's extraordinary. The first in verse 4, we are told there that Jesus knows their thoughts He is able to call what's going on in their heads out into the public space where everyone is there. He's able to say what's in their heads 
to everyone present. That tells you he's not an ordinary man. And then secondly, he performs a miracle to prove his authority to forgive sins. To prove that he, he has the right to say this. What you see coming now is a display of godly power. He's not an ordinary man. Before he does the miracle, he asks them, which is easier to say? On the one hand, your sins are forgiven. Or on the other hand, rise and walk. Which of these two things is easier to say? Surely it is easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't actually see if there's any effect from your words. It's just words. It's much harder to say in front of people, rise and walk because then in front of everyone, you're about to be proved to either be true with your words or a fake. Well, the man does rise and walk, and everyone sees that Jesus does indeed have authority to forgive sin. And so in this story, we see that Jesus' purpose, his mission, is to forgive sin, to sort out sin, and he has the authority to do it. Yes, he deals with disease, but the more important thing that he's on about is the great problem of sin. He has been preaching about repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sin, and now he proves that he has the ability, the authority, the power to forgive sin because he does what God does. He speaks and then impossible things become real just as he speaks. And so that's the first thing I want you to see. The story of the paralytic shows us what Jesus is on about, what his mission is. Let's look at the second story as we go further with this. This is where he calls Matthew. And I want us to consider as we look at this story, who has he come for? What what people has he come for with this forgiveness? Well, once again, you see Jesus' authority in this story. He's just walking along, and then he sees Matthew, the tax collector, sitting at, at his tax office. And then he just says to the man, follow me. And the man stands up, and follows Jesus. What, what sort of man is this who can just speak to someone who is actually making a lot of money, has got a concern that's doing him quite well. He just speaks to the man and immediately that man leaves it all behind and follows. It shows us that Jesus has immense authority. But the story goes on to show us more about Jesus and it goes on to show us who he has come for. Who he's come into the world for. Jesus ends up at a party with other tax collectors and sinful people. And the Pharisees don't like this. And so they ask Jesus' disciples why, why their teacher eats with tax collectors and sinners. 
eating in those days in particular was quite an intimate thing to do. It was, it was to say you really embrace these people, you care about these people. But tax collectors were hated by the Jews because they were working for the Roman occupiers. And also they were known to skim off more than was allowed. And so they were actually crooks. Now Jesus doesn't dispute that these are sinners that he's with. Instead, he says that he is with them because they have a need. Verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, they are sick. Jesus calls himself a doctor to attend to their illness. What is their illness? In verse 13, he switches from talking about illness to talking about sin. The physician and sickness language is a metaphor for sin and healing sin. It's sin that is their illness. And so Jesus has come for sinners and he cares. If nothing is done about sin, then the time will come when he has to judge. He will come and eventually judge. And then sinners, people sick with sin, are doomed. But on the other hand, the Pharisees, well, they don't care. And that's why in verse 13, Jesus says to them, go and learn, go and learn. Verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Oh, they would know what Jesus is talking about. They know their scriptures. This comes from Hosea chapter 6. We read it earlier on in the service. It's from a part in Hosea where the religious people of Israel thought they were so right before God because they did all their religious acts, kept the sacrificial system, so good at offering the regular sacrifices, kept all the rules. But what God is saying is, is that there's no mercy in them. They don't care about people. There's no love in them. And yet, on the other hand, God's character is one of love, of steadfast love. That's, that's a stubborn love, a love that cares so much. But the Pharisees are not like that at all. You know, we can say that we are God's people. We can say that we are Christians. We are follower, followers of Jesus. And yet, we can just be religious. We just go to church and we read our Bibles and we know the Westminster Confession and we know the Shorter Catechism, but we don't care about people. There's no love. Jesus has come for sinners. And the Bible says that all people are sinners. All people are in need. All people need Jesus. The Pharisees also need him, but they don't think so. Because in their pride and their arrogance, they think they can do enough in their religious works to make God think that they are, are worthy and acceptable. They think they are righteous. So what do we know so far? We know from the first story with the paralytic that Jesus has come to forgive sin. And we know from the, the second story that he has come for people who are sinners. And the irony is all are sinners. Let's look at the, the third story, and it's about fasting. And the question I want to ask in this one is, how does Jesus' coming 
change things for people. He, he has come for sinners, that's everyone. He's come to forgive sin. How does having Jesus change everything? Well, a question is asked in the story about fasting. Why do John the Baptist's disciples fast? And why do the Pharisees fast? But disciples of Jesus, well, why don't you? You're not fasting. Everyone else is, but you're not. What's wrong with your lot? Are you really good Jews? Your, your spiritual credentials, they don't seem to add up. Now, before going further, let me tell you that in terms of the Old Testament, only one day was prescribed for fasting, and that was the Day of Atonement. But a tradition existed among particularly religious Jews that they would fast twice a week. I wonder if you can tell by reading just our passage what their fasting was about. Well, I think the rest of the story tells us what their fasting was about. Have a look at verse 15. This is where Jesus responds to the question about them not fasting. He says in verse 15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He's calling their fasting mourning. See, when you fast, you're typically asking God for something. Something's not right. You're mourning something, and you're saying to God, I, I need your help here. On the Day of Atonement, they were mourning their sin, and they were coming to God for forgiveness. What might these people have been mourning about in their regular fasts, their twice-a-week fasts? What might they have been wanting God to do? Well, Jesus says that their fasting or their mourning is not necessary when the bridegroom is with them. So the thing that the fasting is all about must be to do with the bridegroom, with the, to do with the presence of the bridegroom. And when the bridegroom is present, the, the thing that they have been fasting about is granted. He's there. And so you don't need to fast anymore. That's Jesus' logic. I'm here. The bridegroom is here. You don't need to fast. You don't need to mourn. You don't need to ask. But we need to ask this question, well, what is this bridegroom? Who, who is he? Well, in Hosea, God calls himself the husband of his people, of his wayward people, Israel. He uses marriage language. Or in Isaiah 54, God says again that he is their husband. And all of this is in the context of sin being forgiven, of a relationship with God being restored. So do you see what Jesus is doing? He is saying that he is their God. He, 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 he is saying, uh, look at me, speak things into existence. He is saying he is the God who promised to redeem rebellious people, rotten people, sick in sin, to redeem them and make them his beautiful bride. He, he has come for sinners. This is what's been promised all the way through the Old Testament. And so when God is with us, all things are as they should be. What worries can you have if you have got God right there, tangibly with you? What can trouble you? What on earth do you need to mourn about? What do you need to ask for? This one who controls storms. This one who, just with a word, destroys demons. This one who banishes disease. This one who commands men and they just get up and follow. You have nothing to trouble you if you've got this one with you. Yes, Jesus does say that 
he will be taken away from his disciples at a point. And we know that, of course, he goes to the cross. And then there is a time of great mourning. But he would return in victory. You see, in Jesus, all that makes the world so sad and so broken is put right. In Jesus, we can say there are no more tears. In him, God's promise of Revelation 21, that every tear would be wiped away. In Jesus, that comes true. Every tear wiped away. And so how absurd for these people to be fasting. There they are mourning for the one that the Bible has promised to come and put everything right. And he's right there. It's just as absurd as it would be to sew a new patch of material onto an old garment. So there's a hole in the old garment. You sew a new patch without first washing it so that it shrinks. It's absurd. They knew that you don't do that. For if you do that, the first time it goes in the wash, the old material has already shrunk before. It stays the same. The new one, the patch, then shrinks and tears away. It's just no one does that. And the same with wineskins. That's absurd. You never would put new wine into an old wineskin. This leathery skin, when it was first used with new wine and the wine fermented, the skin stretched in the fermentation process. And then they drank that wine. But now they want to go and put new wine into that old wineskin and it's going to need to stretch more. It doesn't have any room to stretch. It's going to burst. The point is it's absurd. No one does that is what Jesus is saying. And it's just as absurd to keep on with the old practice of fasting when the very thing that you've been fasting about, calling God for, mourning over, when that very thing has arrived, that very one has arrived. Well, at the start, I asked the question what the mission of the church is. It has to do with what the leader is about, what the leader has come to do. And we see that he came to take away sin. All people need that. And when you, when you receive him, instead of rejecting him like the Pharisees, you have the one who puts everything right. You have the king of God's kingdom. And you will live in that new kingdom forever. He's the one who puts everything right. And he has expressly given the task of spreading the good news about him to his people, to his church. He came with a heart of great mercy to help spiritually sick people. He came to bring forgiveness so that the forgiven could live in a new world a new world of no more tears, a world of no mourning. He is so wonderful that he has done this out of grace and mercy because he does come ultimately as a judge. The demon said, have you come before your time? He came early so that he could bring pardon. This pardon is only for those who realize that they are sick, who acknowledge their need. When you acknowledge that you are sick, you will seek a cure. And so I want to close with this question. 
Who are you? Who are you? Are you someone who knows that they are sick and are trusting Jesus for forgiveness? Or are you someone who is like the Pharisees who thinks that they are okay and says, I don't need Jesus. I hope that each and every one of you is the first one trusting in Jesus, the one who forgives sin, and the one who makes everything right. No more tears. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for so clearly showing us who Jesus is and what his mission is. And may it be that we as your church speak the wonder of Jesus who forgives sin to the world. Warning the world that judgment will come, but pardon is there for all those who put their trust in Jesus. For all of us who are present, may that be the case, that we are trusting Jesus for that pardon. If anyone isn't there, Lord, we ask that you would stir their hearts, that they would come to that place. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.